Welcome podcast listeners, Humphrey here from Lionheart Football. Today we bring you A Taste for Football, our series which highlights the world of football scouting and covers the individual experiences and journeys into the game of scouts, recruitment managers and directors of football. This exciting podcast allows us to really get to know the individual stories of those responsible for scouting some of this country's best young football talent. Hello, Humphrey here from Lionheart Football, and today we are joined by Adam Knight. Adam is currently an early youth development phase scout at Arsenal Football Club, scouting for under 12 to under 14 players in the southeast. Despite his young age, Adam's experience in football is vast. He's been working in football since 16. He was part of the team that founded the highly accomplished and well-renowned Kinetic Foundation. He's also served as an academy coach with the likes of AFC Wimbledon and Crystal Palace. After taking a sabbatical, Adam is now back in football working with the world-class organisation that is Arsenal Football Club. Adam's super passionate, really enthusiastic and talks with great zeal and determination about football. I'm looking forward to listeners hearing more on his experience in football and his views on talent identification and recruitment of young players. Let's lock in. Hello, Adam. Thanks for joining. Pleasure, mate. Uh, happy to uh, have to be on. Thanks for coming on and um, really good to have you. As I do with every guest that joins us, I always ask you to just introduce yourself and um, explain how you got into football. Okay. Uh, might be a long story. I'll try and shorten it for you. So basically, my name is Adam Knight. I'm currently working at Arsenal. Uh, under Phil, who's been one of your guests previously. Um, and yeah. uh, I basically look after the South East, um, Kent, Surrey, and the sort of South East London clubs uh, and, and make sure that we're on top of um, any emerging talent in that area, basically. Brilliant. And how did you get into football? Um, okay. Um, so I, I've been involved in football from the age of 16, primarily as a coach. Um, so I knew I was not going to be a successful player fairly early on. I had a, had a level of awareness about me to realise that. Uh, did my first coaching badge on my 16th birthday, which at the time was the earliest you could do it. Um, I still, that's still the case, in fact. I then subsequently did a, a badge every year for the next six or seven years. Um, worked at loads of grassroots clubs in South London, uh, Coshorton, Tootenham, Mitcham, and a few others as well. Uh, academy jobs I worked my first academy job was at Wimbledon then I worked at Palace for quite a long time and obviously now currently with Arsenal prior to this role they've all been coaching roles so the scouting element of it is something that I'm still learning and developing myself um, and Phil kind of brought me out of the footballing wilderness uh, last year sort of June July time um, but over a decade really um, without boring you too much um, in, in those clubs environments so given your experience has largely been like in the coaching sector of football, what made you take on the challenge with, with getting into scouting? Uh, happenstance, to be honest with you, mate. Um, so I um, primarily, as I said, I, I work with those clubs that I've mentioned. Um, I was also a co-founder of uh, Kinetic Academy, Kinetic Foundation, which is still in existence today, doing terrific stuff. I left there three or four years ago now. Um, 
and I, for want of a better word, got what's called a normal job. Um, I had obligations, mortgages and so on. Um, and I, I kind of took like a sabbatical, if you like. I just, I needed yeah. to, from a financial position, I needed to get my feet under the table somewhere else and, and see where we were. I then got a call from Phil. Uh, he got back in touch with me, you know, just as a, you know, you do with people, you just touch base and see what's happening. We had a chat. Um, when I knew Phil originally, he was at Reading. Yeah. Um, and uh, I knew him from taking kinetic teams there and, and trying to, you know, um, move boys on and, and get him get signed at Reading. So he called me, we had a chat. I said a, a bit of a flippant comment, really. I said, look, if you've got anything going, kind of uh, bear me in mind. Um, thinking nothing of it, because you have, as you know, you have these conversations in football all the time. Yeah. And um, seldom do they come to, to anything. Anyway, lo and behold, when you give me a call back, I got an email from, from the Arsenal sort of vetting section and they said, oh, look, we've got, we've got a role for you if you're interested. Um, and it allows me to keep my hand in, obviously keep that level of experience within the game and hopefully try and pass on a few nuggets to other people. And uh, it allows me to, to still stay in that elite environment, which is something I really enjoy. Brilliant. And so given the fact you've had experience with boys progressing into professional football clubs, your work with Kinetic, mm -hmm. I wanted to know, now that you've had a chance to experience scouting and it's something that you're currently doing um, actively, yeah. just how important do you think scouting is within youth football and the job that scouts do? It's, it's tremendously important, um, you know, not to, to state the obvious, but it is incredibly competitive. Um, so, you know, there are a, a tremendous amount of clubs um, within that London, Southeast uh, region. Obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's bigger than that, you know, nationally and globally as well. But um, getting in the players with the best um, ability is obviously what helps set uh, clubs apart. Because as a coach, obviously, I was coming in from the opposite end of the spectrum years back. Um, you've kind of got your, your fixed variables, if you like, and these are the players I've got to work with and I've got to get the best out of this group of, uh, this, this group of players, excuse me. So as a scout, obviously you're looking at age groups and going, okay, what, what is this group lacking? Okay, maybe they're lacking, you know, from the, you know, efficient mover athletic perspective, or maybe they're lacking a technician or maybe they're lacking a, you know, insert the blank. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's hugely important. Um, and I think the, just to add to that is it's, when you're scouting, it's something I've had to wrap my head around as well, is that you're you're not necessarily looking at the player then and there. Obviously, that is a factor, but it's more of a what could this player go on to become? Yeah. Which is obviously the sort of the, the $50 million question, quite literally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with you. And so, I mean, what, what are the habits, or should I say, what good habits have you developed within your early scouting practice um i think there's a lot of transferable skills from from coaching and obviously yeah. being in and around football for that long and, and you uh, you know if you're if you're a football person you you've got the kind of core fundamentals i think in terms of additional skills um something i kind of practice and preach before is that you've got to be organized you've got to be on top of stuff in terms of fixtures and players and it's, it's a lot of logistical juggling um, because you might get a text from someone that you used to work with or a contact from a mate of a friend or whatever it might be and oh there's a player at this club and he's of interest 
Um, so the, the age group, just to give you a bit more information, the age group that we look after is 12 to 14. Um, so you might get a, a, a bit of information from someone about a player. You've got to keep, keep an eye on that, that boy, how he's getting on, how his fixtures are progressing. Obviously, grassroots and academies tends to vary quite a lot in terms of consistency of fixtures and kickoff times. And if you're not on top of that, ultimately your club's going to suffer because you're not going to get the best information back to them promptly. And um, furthermore, you're going to suffer personally because you're going to be the Wally standing on the sideline going, wasn't there supposed to be a game here at half past 10 and it's uh, 11 o'clock now and no one's here. Um, so, yeah, just trying to be, I, I would describe it as um, essentially reducing the variables. So trying to, to hone in on, on everything you possibly can and then minimise any errors that might be forthcoming. Brilliant. And so, I mean, working for a world-class organisation like Arsenal, that's obviously operating, operating at the top of English football. Yeah. What pressures do you face within your day-to-day -day role? Um, yeah, there's, there is quite a, as I, as I kind of alluded to before, due to the nature of the competition of what we're dealing with, there's a saturation in terms of, of clubs Particularly, in, as I said, in that southeast area, you've got non-league clubs that are now coming into fruition. You know, you've got Sutton and Bromley that are doing particularly well, and they've got decent youth setups as well. So you've not only got to contend with Premier League football clubs, Championship football clubs, League One and League Two. You've got National League clubs now that have got very good setups. And if you're not, you're not switched on and, and aware of that, um, then those players that can potentially develop into that, you know. It's a, it's a horrible term, really, but the next big thing, if you like, a bit cliche, or, you know, making that first team appearance, um, they're, that, they're that much harder to find. Um, but on the flip side of that coin, um, South London in particular, I mean, there's been many an article written on this, is a hotbed for footballing talent. And it's not something I've ever con concerned myself with as to, you know, are we going to be able to find talented footballers, you know, my time at Kinetic, that was never an issue. Never an issue. Um, so, yeah, as I said, pressures, I would just say, is, is trying to be first past the post um, with, with those emerging talents and, and getting there and having those important conversations and, and getting them over the line and uh, prior to any of your, essentially your rivals getting, getting their foot in the door first. Thank you. And the next question I've got is an interesting one, but given your extensive coaching experience, sure. you would have worked with a, a variety of different types of players and profiles. Yeah. How has your views of coaching players and what you would describe as being talented players affected how you scout players, if that makes sense? Okay, so talent is a really funny word. Yeah. Because it's obviously football as a whole is massively subjective um, and coaches and obviously as you said having primarily been a coach they're going to want different things from different players and different systems and you, you can go you, we could talk for hours on, on that alone um, I think the, the difficulty is you have to know the group so that's one of the things I've had to try and do is get eyes on our own groups. So when I say that, I mean like Arsenal's groups to see what they've got, what they haven't got, where maybe they're, they're, they're in need of additional players. Furthermore, 
the coaching that they're being delivered. Obviously, clubs have a structured syllabus in the way they wish to deliver their programme, but there will be little idiosyncrasies and differences between coaching staff. Um, my time at Palace was, uh, was a few years ago now, but you would get, especially when you were immersed in it, fairly large differences, I would say, in terms of the way the sessions were delivered. The topics might be the same, but yeah. the delivery would be different and what they would be asking would be different. So um, the criteria, I guess, from the club, first and foremost, is like the overarching thing. Then I think secondary to that as the coach of that specific age group. And then I guess you kind of, the, the other thing to consider is the the um, the areas of improvement, if you will, within that group. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. Personally, I think mentality is by far the most important element, if you like. People talk about talent all the time. Um, I could name you that are super talented, but for whatever reason, they're now working in JD Sports and a colleague of theirs who is the same age, very similar profile, arguably less talented, is playing in League One. Um, and that happens all the time. Let me ask you another question then, just leading off that. So when when you were coaching, yeah. what were the qualities that you admired in players? You, I think as a coach, you, oh, I did anyway, I like to know what I'm going to get from a player. So those kind of Gary Neville six out of ten players those, you know, I'm not sure how old your audience is. They might not even know. I think Gary Neville was just a bloke that talks about football. Um, but he used, he used to play a little bit. Um, six out of ten footballers that are consistent. Yeah. I I think, in, in my, my opinion, it is just my opinion, that you need a core of those type of players if you're going to have a successful side. You then have two, maybe three, what I would call mavericks, players that can do something a little bit different. Um, again, it's a cliche term, but have a bit of a bit of flair, can do something off the cuff, have that kind of game-changing ability. Um, but in my opinion, you need a, you need a core, you need a, you need a stable foundation to your team because you're going to have days where, you know, it, for whatever reason, they're not performing to their, their ability, be that the opposition have raised the level or your team are not performing to their, their maximum capabilities, you know, conditions, sleep, diet, whatever, insert any number of variables. Um, and you need those six out of 10 players to get you through those games when you, when your Mavericks are for whatever reason, not affecting the game. So consistency. And I think consistency stems largely from mentality, which is kind of comes full circle to what I alluded to in the last question. I think mentality is the most important thing. Interesting. So the next question then is, now that you're scouting, mm -hmm. what qualities and attributes do you admire in players? Um, I think you can see how the game has changed even in this in the relatively short while I've been involved in it. So I said I started coaching when I was 16. I'm now 32, believe it or not. I know I look really good for my age. Um, you do. Hard paper run. Um, so... I think it's even changed in that relatively short space of time. Um, athletically, I think there's been massive change. Um, when I was at Palace and, and um, Wimbledon, the whole like sports science thing was still relatively new. So we're talking 
as I said, sort of 10 or 15 years ago nearly. Um, it was there and there was sports and conditioning going on, but it was, it was, I felt at the time it was a little bit lip servicey. It's a bit like oh, we we do it because everyone else is doing it, and you know we give them fifteen minutes with him, and they make them run around and do a few fancy things. I think that because it was in his infancy or relative infancy at the time, that's been honed and perfected and polished, and yep. now that input is is very very good, um, and it's it's been made more engaging and interesting for the players. I think at times you see players go off and oh, I've got to do a conditioning now, and they'll be like, oh, God's sake, like. You know, I don't want to do another test or I don't want to do this. You know, they're incorporating um, technical elements. They're incorporating, you know, plyometric stuff, all, all kinds of things that, that competition and games, you know, that one that went viral a few years back about the, the whole cone, the reactionary game with the, with the cones and stuff. Little things like that, um, where the, it can really engage the players. And you almost kind of, you're tricking them into thinking that they're, they're just having fun when actually they're, they're working on something quite quite specific. It's a bit like um, sneaking vegetables into your little kid's plate to try and get him to eat it. Um, yeah. So so that that is really one of the biggest change I've seen is the improvement of players physically yeah. um, and really pushing that ceiling. Um, obviously, you know, uh, technical and uh, tactical understanding are, are vitally important as well. But I think as a this is broader than football as well, I would say, is that physically we're pushing our bodies to do even more um, in all aspects of our lives, be that from a mental capacity standpoint. You know, people are taking supplements so they can concentrate longer in the exams. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's kind of, uh, I guess, pushing your physical limitations. So, yeah, that's, that's what I would say has, has really jumped in the last, um, you know, as long as I've been involved in the game. So now that you're watching players, you the physical aspects and the athleticism is certainly something that you're. Yeah, I think I think obviously there was a large push when I was a player, and there was this kind of whole thing about you know academies will only look at boys that are six foot three and you know massive looking like rugby players or whatever. Yeah. And then it went really away from that. You you got to appreciate that uh, football goes in trends. So when Spain had all that success nationally, everyone was like, oh, let's play like Spain. You know, we're going to yeah. play out from the back and we're going to do, you know, tiki-taka and all the rest of it. And that's that's all well and good, provided you've got the the players and the uh, capabilities to, to, to play that that brand of football. I think there's a bit of snobbery involved in, in certain um, realms of football where, you know, this is this is the way to do it. And I think that's quite short-sighted and narrow, narrow-minded, really. I think you have to be malleable in your approach based on what tools you have available to you. Um, uh, obviously, you want clubs of identity. You know, Arsenal being, you know, a primary example of that. You know, you want to play attractive football. Yeah. You get bums on seats. Um, you know, obviously, what Pep's done at City is, you know, outstanding, and, and he's kept his identity right the way through. But um, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that uh, there is, um, you know, one thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite hard. You know, that, that's the beauty of it, really. And it's quite hard to, to narrow it down. But um, yeah, physically, certainly there's been been large, large change. It's the, it's the potential for that as well, um, moving forward. Cool. I've got a few scouting themes which I want to get your views on. Sure. Um, and the first one is, 
why actually comes back to what what you mentioned just now in terms of players developing. Um, the first one is nature versus nurture. Yeah. Which, which side do you sit on? I mean, do you think players are born with talent or do you think players that are successful are players that have been nurtured over time? Um, I think the, um, the there is obviously like, I think you'd be uh, remiss to ignore the nature element. I do think there are some players that are just like, you just look at them and you think, how on earth have you got to that level of ability at that age or how have you, you know, come to to have this kind of technical excellence, if you like, or game understanding or, or whatever their unique attribute USP is. Um, but um, from my perspective, and this is sort of broader than football again, is that you can't really control those things as a, as a coach. By the time they've got to you or as a scout, by the time you've seen them, um, they've already got or not got that that nature element. Um, the nurture point, I think, is the interesting one in terms of like building a culture. And that kind of comes back to what I said about mentality previously, is that if you build robust, mentally robust players that can deal with challenges and can think on their feet and can adapt, um, then that's going to potentially, in certain circumstances, edge them above their peers that are relying too heavily on the, the nature element be that a technically gifted footballer, you know, or a, a physically incredibly gifted footballer because they are, you know, they, they've got that um, genetic gene pool to work with. If the, the player is incredibly athletically talented, but when he, he comes up against the player that's equally athletically talented and he can't solve that problem and he's not mentally robust enough to deal with it, then he, he's going to come unstuck or she's going to come unstuck. Um, so for me, if I had to lean one way or the other, I'd probably lean towards the... Um, the nurture argument over the nature one, just because I think you've got more tools in your box. Thank you. What about birth bias and clubs um, selecting players um, in a certain quarter of the year? Um, yeah, it, it does. You know, it is, it, is a, it is a thing, so to speak. Obviously, it is part of the data that we collect. Um, I don't think you can put too much stock in it. Um, I think you do get, um, if you look at the data, the overarching data for professional footballers, you do tend to get, obviously, um, in terms of the way that we do academics in this country, you do, you do tend to get those, uh, the summer birthdays, if you like, tend to suffer a little bit because they're young for their year, if you like. Um, and I think, the conclusion that most people draw there is they go, well, they're physically, they go, they immediately go physical. They go, well, they're physically not as developed and therefore they struggle physically. There is an obviously an element of truth in that, but just to kind of hone back to my previous point is there is a mental development there as well, that they're, they're going to need some more time with. Um, so yeah, it exists. It is there. I don't think I'd ever, person I well I would never I would never if I had two players in front of me that were very similar I would never be like well we need to go with this one because he's born in this day but I don't think that's that's um reason enough to uh tip the tip the balance if you like thank you what about subjectivity in scouting and you've been in football a long time you would have come across loads of different opinions and obviously formed your own views 
sure. How do you navigate the subjectivity? Um, it's great to be to be honest because it sparks conversations kind of like obviously what we're having now where um there, there isn't really and i kind of said it previously there's a lot of like snobbery in football where people are like you know you know we don't do that here we do this that's great and that's fine and more power to you but there is more than one way to skin a cat and i think you're you're cutting your nose off to spite your face largely if you if you only look at one uh, way of doing things and also I also think you're you're missing opportunities for personal development if you if you strictly look at uh, one philosophy one pattern one uh, you know kind of mantra um, so yeah the objectivity of football is great because it sparks those discussions um, and as part of working as a scouting team like that we have at Arsenal that's great as well because we're having those discussions all the time um, I might go and watch a player and say, you know, I really like this kid. Can, it happened actually the other day. Uh, can someone go and have a look at this lad? Uh, because he's playing a fixture in their, their region. They will then go and look at him. We'll discuss uh, based on what I've seen and based on what they've seen, whether we see any any uh, opportunity to move this boy forward. Um, and those, those conversations are great. Um, ultimately, it's... It, it's a it's an almost an unanswerable question because let's say for example me and you both watched a player and I say yeah I want him in he's he's top drawer you look at him and you go yeah it's a no from me Adam I'm not you know, I'm not not too keen wherever that decision goes be it yes or no and he does in fact come into the club um, there are so many external variables going on there during his eight week trial or if it's extended longer or whatever that if I'm right and he gets signed. You could argue that it's it's down, you know, it's a good call from Adam, well done. But if he goes in and he, and he doesn't get over the line, you know, you can then say, well, you know, I told you, you know, I didn't, I didn't think he had it in him anyway and, and we are wasting everyone's time. You know, I think with youth football, people underestimate what is going on externally in these kids, and they are still kids, these kids' lives. Yeah. Like they Mum and dad might be going through a tough time going through a divorce. They might have pressures at school. They might have, you know, a problem with a sibling or, or whatever. Um, they might have some sort of underlying health condition they're unaware of. They might have an allergy or whatever. It, the, the opinions part of it is terrific because it allows that debate to start. Um, and then it's, it's kind of fun seeing where, where it ends up. But I think in reality, it's hard to put a number on it, but... Um, it's super hard to narrow down how much is actually down to the, the scout or the coach or the player in terms of, I guess, like a, a percentage. It's more just like you have an inclination, you have a feeling, you have based on what I've seen, here are my thoughts. And then, you know, you, you've got to trust, trust the process and see what comes out. But I think that there's a lot more going on it's like an iceberg footballer. You know what I mean? There's a lot going on below the surface that you've got no idea. Um, and, and those debates and those conversations are great to have. But yeah, it's all it's all fun, mate. It's all fun and learning. I definitely think it's an interesting point you make there. Like speaking on the the example of the player who goes into the club, you've put him forward. It's not worked out. The other scout has said no. You know, they would go against the player coming in. It doesn't work out. I don't even think you can put it down to a case of it being I told you so because we've seen in many previous examples of players who have gone to a club 
on a trial. It's not worked out. And then they've been signed by an alternative club um, in a short space of time. There was a lad recently, um, I can't remember the, the, the player's name now. He was um, he went in trial at Chelsea, I think at 14. I forget the chap's name. Whoever listened to this will be able to tell you, I'm sure. But um, he went in trial at Chelsea at 14, I believe. Didn't get, got a no. Went to Charlton. He's a forward, I can't remember his name now. Anyway, went to Charlton, stayed there for a little bit, made a first-team debut, and I think he's now gone back to Chelsea. Um, and, and there are countless examples of, of exactly yeah. what you were talking about. Um, and I think you do need like a, a cocktail, if you like, a perfect storm for some players. It's just not the right time. Yeah. Um, which is equally why I think you should be very humble as a scout or as a coach or as an agent or whatever if you do get success. Because do you know what? Actually, the chances are it's not actually that much to do with you. Do you know what I mean? Like you get all these people on social media and like, oh, you know, I did this, that, and the other for this player, and I, I made him, so to speak. And it's like, well, you may have helped him to what degree we'll never really know, but actually, um, you know, the, the stars have aligned and it's it's worked out in everybody's best interest. But yeah, I think it, it's got to work both ways. Equally, when it doesn't materialize. You know, you, you got to take it on your chin and move on and, and try and continue to help that player. Um, but when it does, you know, a bit of humility never hurt anybody. Um, totally so, agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next one's, I think you're probably a, a really interesting person to ask this. And it's about development centres. And the reason I say I think you would be in a great position to speak on it is because you've been part of an independent organisation with the Kinetic Yep. organization that has seen massive success in terms of players being developed and signing for professional football clubs. Sure. Now, there's an argument to suggest that an independent football coaching organization which develops talent yep. is a competitor for a professional football club's development center or ID center program. Yeah. Um in terms of development centres, in my experience, we had a, a wicked one at Palace. Um, so very fortunate to work with, obviously, uh, Jamal Jarrett is now at Man United and Joe Shields is now at Man City and, and they were part of that recruitment whilst I was at the club. Um, and the, the guys at Lambeth Tigers and they've done wicked, wicked, wicked things. Um, I think the key with development centres is there needs to be that progression. So you know when you hear players sign it, clubs, young players, and they go, oh, I've signed here because there's a pathway to the first team. It's the same principle with development centres. You need to see, and the people attending need to see, and the parents need to see, and the coaches need to see, that there is a realistic opportunity for these boys to get what obviously isn't the first team, because you're talking about younger age groups. It's, it, the, the first team is essentially the academy for the relevant age group, under 13, under 14, whatever it is. Um, because it makes it real. What you don't want is you don't want development centres where they just kind of corral kids. Um, and I've seen that before where they're just like, well, you're not, you're not really, you're a good Sunday league footballer if you like, but you're not really going to be anything. But we'll keep you in our development centre because we'll give you a bit of false hope and then no one else can nick you. Yeah. Um, like a bit of a safety blanket. You know, he's, he's not bad in, we'll keep him for six months or whatever it is on on tenter hooks, but we're not really that interested because if we were, we would have offered it by now. Um, so you need to really avoid that kind of environment at all costs. And um, 
that's important. In terms of private academies, obviously you mentioned um, my background. Uh, we did wicked things and managed to get loads and loads of kids into clubs, and they still managed to do that. And, and credit to them, you know, they're, they're flying. Um, I think the advantage, if you like, that private organisations have is they're not narrowed. Uh, the blinkers aren't on in terms of where they can send the player. Yeah, and that's something we were very cautious about doing in in its infancy with Kinetic. Is we weren't we didn't want to partner with any clubs because you you actually you're 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 taking away your your USP because you're saying well we send our players to Palace and what if Palace say no? Well, sorry, kid. Then then you're back in your development center again, aren't you? You're back yeah, in that. Yeah, yeah. We'll corral the kids and we'll keep them. Yeah. What you want is you want, and that's something they've they've done brilliantly is is have a vast network of clubs all over the country, or be bigger than that now. To be fair, all over all over Europe, where we can facilitate opportunities, um, and that's where the private academies have the edge, is because they're not partnered with clubs. Now that sounds weird because as a as a grassroots coach, if you're I don't know Dog and Duck United under thirteen manager, and you get approached by I don't know, Man United, and they say, oh, can we have a link with your Sunday League club? And you go, yeah, bloody hell, Man United. And it might be great for a couple of your boys, or, or you know, but you you want to cast the net wide as opposed to Absolutely. fixing onto, onto one club. So, yeah, they're kind of my thoughts on that. I think clubs obviously have, typically speaking, not always, but you typically have greater resources, greater facilities, not always, but potentially greater coaches. <laughs> And uh, they're obviously for parents and players as well. Um, they're a bit like magpies. And if you show them nice shiny things, they, uh, they can kind of run away with themselves a little bit and they dismiss kind of the, um, the, the wide net of the grassroots opportunities, which we, which we spoke about. So, yeah, it's, it's not, a, there isn't really an answer. It's not a one size fits all. I think, done properly the private academies can offer brilliant opportunities and, and you've come up with some wicked examples um the key thing with development centers in my opinion as, I, as i've already said i won't flog a dead horse is that it's not stagnant essentially great points adam how can the industry the scouting industry that is be further professionalized um i think you need to have um a little bit more uh, regulation in terms of um, from the FA there is still a little bit of skullduggery that goes on between clubs uh, I think if you and when I say that what I mean is um, clubs are understandably so I, I guess they're not entirely truthful all the time with each other um, I think if you want transparency and you want clarity of practices in terms of recruitment you need to try to um, level the playing field. And I do understand why smaller clubs are reticent to be more forthcoming with details about players and fixtures and whatever else, because the EPPP um, that came in a few years ago with regards to compensation has made smaller clubs' life incredibly difficult. Uh, and I think they're acting in their own best interests. I don't think that piece of legislation is very well thought through. Um, basically, to summarise that, that piece of legislation basically dictates how much compensation clubs pay for players based on how long they've been at the club and at what age they've joined. 
that's just, that's it in a, in a nutshell. There's a bit more detail, but that's that's basically the nuts and bolts of it. Um, and it essentially favours the big clubs. Um, and because of that, it, it was I, I imagine it was obviously in place prior to that. But I, I don't. I think that's exacerbated the, the issues and the lack of transparency and the um, clarity in that area is because the financial remuneration available for those smaller clubs has been drastically reduced and therefore they have to you know act in their own self-interest which sometimes is dishonest shall we say <laughs> a bit cryptic but i think you get where i'm going with it yeah absolutely anything else for scouts in terms of professionalizing the industry um i think obviously i mentioned regulation and EPPP and FA and stuff, governing body work. I think clubs obviously have their own ethos, similar to what we discussed with coaching and playing styles. Yeah. They have their own ethos with 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 with, with scouts, excuse me. Um, I think being professional and approachable is always a big one. I think gone are the days where you see the guy in the um, you know, the old sheepskin coat standing at the corner of a pitch smoking or whatever with his with his little notepad. I think you need to be um dynamic in the way you deal with clubs um, and players you need to be efficient in terms of your report writing you need to be concise um, in terms of the detail that you're getting across when you're feeding back to, to senior members at the club um, yeah and I, and I think as I said that that kind of transparency um across the board not to go back to what I said originally but I think the money in football is so great now that that you there is there is temptation basically i think on the table for for people to 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 act and behave in a way that necessarily they they probably wouldn't if um you know it's like the old saying would you do it if your mum was watching you know i mean chances are probably not and if you wouldn't do it then you probably shouldn't do it so i i just think great regulation for the fa and a, and a clear instruction from your club are crucial, basically. Yeah, really good advice there, especially where you mentioned the report writing um, and being concise in your feedback to the club when, when reporting on players. Is there any advice, or should I say, is there any further advice you would give to aspiring scouts who wanted to get into the industry? Um I think if you look at people that have gone on to do great things, and there are a number of them that I've been fortunate enough to, to work with in, in various capacities, um, is the there's no substitute for contact time. Um, and what I mean by that is just getting out there and, uh, and there are people that I've met that are like, a walking version of grassroots football manager and they can tell you who the under 13 centre forward is for Bromley, you know, Sunday league team. And then they can tell you who the left back is for, you know, um, Selzen's FC or whatever it is. And that exposure is what's created that kind of database internally in these people's heads. So there's no substitute for getting out there and getting in amongst it and just uh, getting that, level of knowledge um, and if you do that and you've got that that database so to speak then it won't be long before um, a club sees the success that, you, that you've managed to 
you know, bring to certain players and there'll be opportunities available for you. But it will take time. But, you know, feet on the ground, as I said, there's no, there's no real substitute for that. Excellent. Adam, before we finish off, I'd like to go over our Triple P quiz, which is based on the three pillars at Lionheart Football. That's passion, purpose, potential. The aim is for you to answer the questions in as few words as possible. Might be tricky with me, mate. I'll try my best. <laughs> Quick fire. Why is football scouting your passion? Uh, because it allows me to watch uh, emerging talented footballers and then put them in the right place for opportunity. What is the purpose of your role? Um, to identify emerging talent uh, and provide them with opportunities to play football at the highest level to them. How can a player fulfill their potential? Uh, hard work. Um, that kind of mentality, that kind of drive and focus. Uh, if you if you wrap all of those things together, then then you'll be able to succeed at the at the best relevant level to the player. Brilliant. Added to that, they should watch a Gary Neville documentary as well. They probably should. Yeah. <laughs> six Excellent. out of ten managers love six out of ten. I'm telling you. Brilliant. No, I really appreciate that, Adam. Thank you very much. And if there's any, well, I'm pretty sure there'll be aspiring scouts or people that want to get into the industry listening. Would you be happy for them to connect via LinkedIn or? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, no problem. I'm, I'm always happy to, to give whatever advice I can um, and help I can. Uh, I think that's how we improve the game as a whole. It's people that have got experience you know, not kind of coddling that up and, and not willing to share that with, with younger people that are just starting out, you know. Um, someone else having success doesn't take away from your own success. And that's something that I've learned, you know, as you get older, just because so-and-so is doing really well doesn't mean you can't. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, so, so, yeah, more than happy for that. Brilliant. Adam, top man, thank you again. It's been a, been a pleasure, Humphrey. Thank you very much for inviting me on, mate. Cheers, my man.